As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you're going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey Cause this is my road Now you gon' face the door you waiting for I said from night to dawn I write my wrongs alone In competition with warnings Ice galore Now I'm running toward that My life's finish Being a quitter But little, little by little They joking, telling some riddles Now I'm in my section Ain't willing to give up Know you getting knocked down But you gotta get up I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey Cause this is my road Let's camera action I'm ready to go Give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey Yeah, this is my run, let's camera action, I'm ready to go You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM Harry, thanks so much, and and, and Sasha Turner is here uh, You may have heard uh, Sasha on some previous shows And she she's either a masochist or just someone that really appreciates true true beauty of opportunity because this is their third time back so this is a, this is a record sasha and i know that i'm your your agent is probably going to reach out to me in terms of uh increasing the, uh, revising the, our contract so i'll i'll try to get prepared for that but again good, good morning this is tom ficklinson sasha turner is with us associate professor uh of history at quinnipiac university and believe it or not today and i say believe it or not because even although this is we've had the uh uh the united nations international day of remembrance for, of the victims of slavery and the transatlantic mm-hmm. slave trade for the t- 10 years. How long is it? When did the United Nations roughly um, start this, this March 25th anniversary? How, is it or into the 10th year or the fifth yeah, year? So it started in 2001. In 2001. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm pretty sure that many of you that are listening do not, do not know that today, well, March 25th was the day, but because March 25th this year was on a, a Sunday. So we're celebrating it today, but is the, since in 2001, the United Nations established the International Day of Remembrance of the Victims of Slavery and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. So we know about Christmas, and we know about Martin Luther King Day, and we know about Easter coming up. But again, what is this, uh, to, have, to have to have a, an, an International Day of Remembrance about the, the uh, I won't even use the word Holocaust, because that word didn't, I don't think really existed, but we, it was a true, true Holocaust. Uh, and again, so the United Nations, the March 25th, the International Day of Remembrance of, of the Victims of Slavery and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. The reason I keep on repeating this is because Sasha's here to really kind of breathe life into what that means, uh, not only in terms of 2001, but in, in 1801, 1701, 1601, and uh, we'll see where we go in, in the future uh, about when we, when we, for memory and history and, and culture and beliefs and how that kind of impacts all of us as we move forward. So good morning, Sasha. Good morning, Tom. It's always, always good to see you. And again, this is the third time. Third time's a charm. Fourth time, you're still coming back again. And then we'll, we'll see. Our, our agents, will, our peeps will get together and kind of discuss what's going on. You sent me a very interesting, it was a, uh, from Her, Her Majesty's uh, Treasury. So, uh, it was a, uh, a, twi- a, a, a tweet. Yes. And again, we still have this term, literally, Her Majesty. You know, it's still in, 
in the, in the, in the popular parlance. Um, and it, it was, it was during black history month. Um, and it was just so fascinating. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. Right. Um, so I'm sort of, I have my phone here with me. Um, so I could, you know, sort of pull the tweet up. Um, so this was on February 9th, um, of this year, a tweet came out uh, from Her Majesty's Treasury. So this is the official Twitter account um, from the Treasury. Um, and it sort of said, you know, here's today's surprise in Friday fact. So it's sort of this uh, fun fact. Um, and I'm sort of quoting here from the tweet where it says, millions of you helped end the slave trade through your taxes. Um, and then it sort of goes down. So before I sort of continue, um, the tweet has since been deleted. So if hmm. you were to sort of go online to try and find uh, the tweet, you perhaps would not be able to find it, um, you know, directly from uh, the the Twitter account from HM Treasury. Um, but you can sort of find it on several articles. So mm. several individuals have taken screenshots of it. There have been a number of articles uh, written about it. And I'm just sort of, I've just returned from Jamaica. And there mm. was also a conference held um, at the University of the West Indies as well, um, discussing the tweet, and we could talk about those mm-hmm. those points in a little while. So, just sort of um, a, a, a note right there that the tweet is no longer available. Um, but the tweet then sort of goes on to say, uh, "Did you know?" And I'm still quoting here, and I'm reading the tweet just so I don't mischaracterize what was tweeted. It said, "In 1833, Britain used 20 million pounds." 40% of its national budget to buy freedom for all slaves in the empire. The amount of money barred for the Slavery and Abolition Act was so large that it wasn't paid off until 2015, which means that living British citizens helped pay to end the slave trade. End quote. So that's the, the, the end of the, the tweet, um, which, as I said before, is no longer available on the Twitter account. Um, but this tweet is problematic on several um, levels, and I don't think we'll have time to talk about all the issues. Um, but one of the things which came out from the Jamaica conference, so as I mentioned, um, in Jamaica, they had a press briefing, a press conference discussing the tweet. And part of the reason we're actually seeing um, the Jamaica and the Caribbean uh, people being able to respond so quickly is there's actually a groundswell movement now going on in the Caribbean, a movement for reparations. Um, so CARICOM, which is Caribbean Community, uh, created the CARICOM Reparations um, Commission and also the University of the West Indies in 2016 also la- launched the Center for Reparations Research, um, both of which, so the re- reparations research is directed by Professor Vereen Shepherd, mm-hmm. and the CARICOM uh, Commission is being chaired uh, by Professor Sir Hilary Beckles. And so the conference that was held in Jamaica, uh, we had uh, responses from both Sir Hilary Beckles as well as Professor Vereen Shepherd. And some of the arguments um, that they but, pointed but, out, go but, ahead. But take, take us, if you can, just rewind just a little bit because you're saying that there was a point in the 1830s or so when the great great Britain abolished slavery and paid slave owners. Yes. And that was in the 18, when 1834. And this is now when (laughs) we're in 2018 and that there was some financial issues. Right. So the process of abolition and this is abolition in the British Caribbean, the British West Indies in particular, 
was a very long process. And part of what the tweet doesn't do very well is to capture the complicated history. So the abolition process in the Caribbean in 1807, we saw the abolition first of the transatlantic slave trade. And in 1834, we saw the abolition of slavery. Mm. Um, and with the abolition of slavery in 1834, the British government paid 20 million pounds to the slaveholders, mm. right? So not to the enslaved people, mm-hmm. to the slaveholders. And this was As compensation. Re- it was reparations for them. Right. So this was compensation um, for lost property. So part of the argument is that, or the, the principle um, is that slaves were property. Hmm. And so in order, the argument that was made is that in order for the British government to enact emancipation, compensation had to be paid to the slave hmm. owners. Hmm. And so what the tweet is trying to point attention to is sort of the benevolence of the British government in paying compensation monies. Mm. Um, well, not paying compensation money, but in buying the freedom. So mm. the language of the tweet is that we've actually, with our money, purchased the freedom of enslaved Africans, mm. which is not quite the case. It's a mm-hmm. bit more complicated than that. Um, one of the points that Professor Beckles pointed out at the conference is that the total sum of compensation was 47 million pounds, right? 47, 47 million pounds. That's right. Um, and what the British government in those, paid... In those, dollars, in those pounds. In I mean, those pounds. In those days. In, right, right. So the calculation today, I think, is somewhere... The 20 million is somewhere between um, maybe 12 and 15 billion pounds today. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about currency in 1834 versus currency today. The total compensation was 47, the total value mm. of enslaved people. So what was done was that the slaves, they were valued in terms of their age, their mm-hmm. approximate age, their sex, their ability to work. So were you a field laborer, um, were you a domestic laborer, um, or were you a child? And so every enslaved person in the Caribbean, a value was placed on them. And of the total number of enslaved people in the Caribbean, um, they were valued overall to be 47 million pounds. Mm. What the British government paid was actually 20 million pounds to the slaveholders, less than half Mm. of the total value. And that 20 million pounds um, accounted for 40% of the total expenditure of the British government at the time in Mm. 1834. Mm. So imagine if they were to have paid out that 47 million pounds, it would have bankrupted. Bankrupt, yes. That's right. It would have Mm. bankrupted the the British government. So what was worked out is that the government would pay 20 million pounds cash money um, to the planters and the remaining 27 million pounds would be paid by the enslaved people themselves. (laughs) So... I'm I'm ripped off and I still got to pay for to the ripper offer. Yes. So 27 <laughs> I know million that's not pounds. An academic phrase, but Yes. Yes. So it's the great swindle. It's um yes. what Beckles is saying is the deceptive thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Um so there is a lot of talk about the 20 million pounds, but attention is not being paid to the 27 million pounds that was extracted in labor. So in 1834 what the British government did was to pass legislation that ended slavery in legal terms. Mm-hmm. 
but they instituted what was called an apprenticeship system. And this apprenticeship system was a halfway house between slavery and freedom. So enslaved people were required to work for an additional four to six years under this apprenticeship system Mm. Mm. for their enslavers Mm. without compensation. So yes, slavery legally has ended Mm -hmm. in 1834, but in order to pay for that remaining 27, 27 million pounds that the British government could not afford to pay, the enslaved people had to continue working after, quote unquote, 1834 freedom for four to six years in an apprenticeship system. And so when the, um, the tweet says, we bought your freedom, that's wrong on so many levels. Mm, mm. Um, even the 20 million pounds, it wasn't for the enslaved person. It was for the slave owner. Um, the 27 million pounds, which the tweet and many who talk about the compensation money don't point to, is that additional that balance 27 million pounds that was paid by the blood, sweat, and mm. labor of enslaved people mm. to work for an additional four to six years in this halfway house between slavery and freedom. Again, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show, and Sasha Turner is here with us, Associate Professor of History at Quinnipiac. And again, this is a complicated subject that I know you're probably hearing it for the first time, and I'm certainly, although I've read a little bit about it, just, just hearing and understanding the, the nuances of what you're discussing um, is just so profound as we talk about the United Nations, what, what kicked off in, in 2001 in terms of remembrance of slavery and, and, our, and our, our oppression. But Sasha, you mentioned oh, the payment still can, the, the, the British government still had to kind of do some loan refinancing up yes. until recently. Yes. yes. So the irony of the tweet is that it attempted to self-congratulate the British government in supposedly buying freedom. Um, and what it actually did was to unearth, again, the duplicity of the British government. Um, so the loan was finally paid off in 2015, <laughs> a few years ago. Mm. Um and it was paid off in 2015, and the research is new on this, um, and so we're still sort of trying to dig and uncover the data. But the argument is that the loan was refinanced several times. Mm. Um, the the most recent, I think, um, and this might have been from a piece that Professor Vereen Shepherd wrote and talked about, uh, was in 1927 um, by Winston Churchill, then uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, so the loan was refinanced and most of us are, might be familiar. So my husband, um, he is into finance. He's mm-hmm. a finance manager. So, you know, I had to tap into his yes, expertise indeed. to explain what loan capitalization means. And in simple terms, if you own a house, most of us might refinance. So mm-hmm. you might sort of take out a mortgage at 4% and a few years later, interest rates might have dropped to maybe 1.5% or something. And so people might refinance their house in order to take advantage of lowered interest Mm -hmm. rates. And so what that does is that it frees up some amount of capital. So what you're actually repaying in a given month is less when you've refinanced at a lower interest Mm -hmm. rate. Um, But sometimes what refinancing can do is that it extends the life of the loan. So, you know, you sort of get capital 
immediately to pay or, you know, to do with whatever uh, you want, but it has sometimes the effect of extending the loan. So again, the research on the refinancing of the slavery loan is still new. Um, a lot of this is new information that we've been uncovering. There was also an article in the New York Times in 2014 mm-hmm. talking about uh, several debts that the British government has been trying to pay off dating back to the 18th century. And the slavery loan is only one of them. So mm-hmm. there are several loans mm-hmm. from the 18th and 19th century, again, based on new research that we are uncovering that, you know, there are a series of loans that date back to the 18th and 19th century that the British government is in the process of repaying. And, and again, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin show and, and Sasha Turner is, is with us, the, um, associate professor at Quinnipiac University. And Sasha, the, we're celebrating the International Day of Remembrance of the, uh, the victims of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. So this, this is right on, I mean, this is right on target. Yes. <laughs> this, this, so, so, so tell, tell me about that. Well, you know, um, so again, referring to the conference in Jamaica, I think one of the questions that Sir Hilary Beckles raised is, was it somewhat deliberate um, for the British um, treasurer to have tweeted out this particular tweet um, mm-hmm. back in February? Mm-hmm. Um, one February, as we discussed a few weeks ago, was Black History Month. And of course, now it's, um, you know, the International Day of Remembrance for the Victims of Slavery and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. And so, you know, we're wondering, you know, was there some kind of a deliberateness? And I would perhaps argue that coming out in Black History Month, that it was somewhat, um, it might have been geared towards turning attention to the role of the British in Black liberation, um, but it was woefully miscalculated. But I would argue that it was very well calculated because mm. of the wording of it, that we bought mm. mm-hmm. your freedom, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say it's calculated because it's tapping into Um, a narrative, a particular narrative that's not new to the British. So I think it's Chris Brown's book, Moral Capital, where he talks about how the British have leveled this this image of morality to then expand its empire in the 19th century. Mm. And so Mm. projecting this idea, very similar to, you know, today, this idea of war and terror, um, where we see... Fake fake news as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. We see, um, you know, the United States sort of extending its empire um, under the guise of war and terror. And so a similar... So the British sort of might have been of forebearers in this where mm-hmm. they argue that the, what they're embarking on is a war against slavery. And so once they ended, the interesting thing is when the British ended the slave trade in 1807 and then ended slavery in 1834, Britain uh, took on the role of international police. So they started mm. to police the international waters um, for illegal slave trading. And they started this massive campaign against mm. slavery um, and the slave trade, because of course there were other nations who continued to be yes, involved yes. in the slave trade. And of course, um, the United States, for example, where slavery didn't end until 1865. So there were nations that were still very much actively um, engaged in slavery. And we think about the existence of slavery in Africa, um, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. where the subsequent partition of Africa, part of 
um, you know, the British government moving into Africa is under this this argument that they were actually embarking on a campaign, a humanitarian campaign oh, against against slavery. Um, and so this tweet actually taps into a very long history of Britain sort of leveraging moral capital um, in order uh, to extend its empire. And in this mm. case, to sort of congratulate itself and also to perhaps, you know, use a smokescreen mm, against mm, the mm, contemporary mm, claims for mm. reparations. You, that, that, that's really profound. You, you referenced also, Sasha, David Cameron kind of visited Jamaica in 2015, and he was the former pr- prime minister, I think. Yes. So when David Cameron visited Jamaica in 2015, he was then prime minister. Um, and, you know, he addressed the parliament in Jamaica. And one of the things that he said, you know, oh, come on, people from the Caribbean, you need to forget about slavery. Slavery happened a long time ago. Um, we need to get over it and move on, essentially. Um, and this is, again, where the deception comes in, that in the same breath that the then prime minister said to the people of the Caribbean, forget about slavery. Here they are, on the other hand, sort of paying, paying. money. Still, they're yes. still mm-hmm. they're still paying. So, you know, part of the argument that the Caribbean Reparations Commission is making is that this is very much a contemporary issue. Um, people, the British government was not only paying on the loan, but financiers were collecting interests that's on right. the loan, right? So that's, that's right. the other part of mm-hmm. it that um, it, it sort of points to how really ugly, um, you know, this whole issue is. Because if you think about the moral argument against slavery, the same argument that the British government is leveraging um, in terms of congratulating itself, the moral argument of slavery is that it's wrong to own people, to own human beings as property, right? So that was the moral argument against slavery. But in the same breath that, you know, the British government congratulates itself in this moral tone that it's wrong to own human beings as property, it's also negotiated, um, you know, a compensation package. It, it has a loan that it's still paying on. There are mm. individuals mm-hmm. who are still collecting yes. interest on that very principle of owning human beings as property. Um, so it's very duplicitous, it's very deceptive, um, but also very complicated about how uh, the British government is sort of on the one hand saying, you know, we did this wonderful thing. But if you sort of take a closer look at it, mm. it's it's really mm. quite mm. rotten mm. Um, at the mm. core. Mm. You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show. Sasha, this is, this is just fantastic. What do you want to say to people about the International Day of Remembrance? What should we... What should be some of some of our takeaways? Just the person on the street. I I had to kind of write down the phrase because just even saying the words kind of brings up so many emotions in me. Uh, But what do you want people to to realize or to think about the the need and the importance of this International Day of Remembrance? Well, um, the International Day of Remembrance, part of the reason it was created. So it's coming out of the 2001 uh, Durban Conference in South Africa against racism Um, racial discrimination, xenophobia, racial intolerance. Um, And part of the the idea of creating the day was to educate. Um, It was to encourage international cooperation against discrimination. Mm. And so I think for um, most of us who are not one familiar with slavery and the slave trade is to start, you know, getting involved, start the process of educating yourself about the experiences of slavery, about the experiences of the slave trade. 
this was one of the most horrific um, examples um, or perhaps the most horrific examples of man's inhumanity to man. Um, And so, you know, for most of us who are not even familiar with slavery, Mm. um, most of us where the curriculum were actually fighting Mm. to have slavery included in the curriculum, including in Britain, um, including here in the United States. I think part of what we have to do is to begin the process of self-educating, even if we're not being exposed to it in our schools, um, you know, in our daily life is Mm -hmm. to start the process of self-educating about what this this great thing was um, in in the history of human uh, human beings, and you and and you suggested I don't want to put I, I would never even even attempt to put words in your mouth, but but I believe you're suggesting that there's in terms of our political process, in terms of our economic process, in terms of our social systems, in terms of our psychic and moral infrastructure today, there's some connection. There is, um, you know, the the last two shows that we did, we talked about the problems, the ills that are facing our world today. And I keep talking about inequality um, and the kind of hierarchy and this assumption of one race being superior to the other. Um, And that sort of defines, has defined our most recent history and continues to define our existence today. So the legacies of slavery, so part of, you know, the United Nations aim in creating this International Day of Remembrance is to educate not just about the horrific experiences, but also the legacies. Um, So we can identify any number of social issues facing the United States or in the case of the Caribbean, um, we can identify several issues and if you sort of look very closely at it, a lot of it is actually rooted in the experience of Mm. slavery. Mm. Um, And so, you know, our contemporary experiences is really very much rooted in um, not just the experience of slavery itself, but the continued legacies and the ways in which slavery has morphed and the Mm -hmm, racism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was used to justify slavery has metastasized over the, over the centuries. And you, you referenced the the Durban conference and, if memory serves, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there was some controversy about the United States. We did participate. We didn't participate. There was some issues about our full embracing of the the importance of this Durban conference. Right. I can't remember um, if the U.S. had participated or not. Um, so I'm sort of mm-hmm. a scholar yeah, of the Caribbean, I, I, okay. and I, I sort of paid. Yeah, yeah, I believe there was some controversy about we, okay. we, we kind of put one toe in the water and one toe out. and But, but uh, uh but tell me a little bit more about the, the current ramifications, how you see in terms of our policies or processes uh, or, or even our political landscape. Because, again, I think it's easy to kind of dismiss, okay, that happened. We paid off. Or it might have taken 100,000 years to pay off the debt. We, we've done. We're done. Let's wash our hands. Let's right. move on. Well, to sort of go back a little bit um, to the point about the U.S. participation. Okay. In general, um, there has been quite a bit of hesitation from um, – American and European governments to participate in these these conversations. Mm. So if we sort of look at one of the mm. mandates coming out of that conference is to encourage international cooperation. Mm. Um, the mm. issue of international cooperation is that the European governments, the American governments in particular, are very slow to embrace these conversations because what it does is that it sort of points a finger, it holds them accountable. And the resistance, there is tremendous resistance from these governments to one, acknowledge that this was a crime against humanity. And more significantly, and in light of the contemporary um, movements for reparatory justice, 
um, they are sort of hesitating yes. to make any kind of apology um, about this crime because then what it does is that it sort of gets the conversations going even more about reparations. So there is quite a bit of hesitation to be part of these conversations. And even when they are part of the conversations, it's the, the, the experience or the historic um, occurrence of slavery and the slave trade is spoken of in terms of regret as opposed to taking mm. any mm. kind of legal responsibility mm. Mm. Um, for what occurred. Mm. Mm. That's, again, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin show and Shasha Turner is here. I, I mentioned before, before we went on the air that uh, I've just been, every time I chat with you, my mind just goes into really a pondering re- reflective mode. And it's so, and I think that's the purpose of in my mind, Sasha, about why it's, uh, there's a number of benefits for you to be here, but for us to kind of take a moment and take a deep breath and, and exhale about where have we gone in terms of national, international Caribbean history, world history. Cause again, the day is a, is a new day, but on, this, on the other hand, it's sometimes it's, it has some, some old ram- ramifications. Um, you, be- you believe that there's such a thing as morality. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, historians tend to be cynical and uh-huh, skeptical. Right. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure um, because it's such a gray area. Um, but I think there are things that we can sort of argue that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um but then, you know, morality is one of those issues that becomes contextual. We can sort of, you know, relativize it. Uh-huh. So it's like politi- political definitions, perhaps. And for, uh, mor- 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 the, even the word morality might be a political term. Yes, it is a political it, term. Okay. It, it yeah. has been used in a very political sense. Um, one of the things that I think about and what sort of comes through in these debates is the issue of morality in terms of the personal conviction of the British men and women who were engaged in campaigning against slavery and the slave trade Mm -hmm. versus morality, which is used as a platform to then advocate or then, um, you know, extend empire, for example. So it sort of becomes um, this concept that can be elusive um, and a concept that, you know, people believe in and advocate for something. Whereas on the other hand, in terms of thinking specifically through the British government's um, role in spreading a particular idea about morality, it then is used as a kind of smokescreen mm. to then mm. do something mm. else. Mm. So I think one of the things um, that, you know, we, we think about and we try to emphasize as historians and to go back to the tweet on why it's mm-hmm. so problematic mm-hmm is that it confuses um, or tries to oversimplify a very complicated history. Um, So it sort of doesn't get to the distinction between people who felt it in the depths of their core that to traffic in human beings was wrong, that it was immoral, right? That to hold another person as property, it's wrong, Mm -hmm. it's immoral, um, versus, you know, the policy, those who were formulating policy and those who had the task of formulating how the abolition of the slave trade and the abolition of slavery would essentially take effect. 
So, and this here is sort of, I'm, I'm thinking through um, Eric Williams' Capitalism mm. and Slavery, mm-hmm. um, where one of the, the legacies of his work is to make a distinction between those two, which is, you know, the moral campaign against slave trade and, this, uh, I'm sorry, slavery and the slave trade versus policy formulation, policies that are taken up by, you know, ministers of government, by the government in terms of how slavery and the slave trade would come to and then, so we have to make that distinction when we talk about morality. Because as I mentioned mm. before, mm-hmm. the British government leveraged this moral capital to say, you know, we are embarking on a war against slavery. Um, and they use this, this idea of being morally opposed to slavery to then um, enter into countries, to then dictate the affairs of different countries. Um, versus on the other hand, you had enslaved people, I'm sorry, you had people in England who said, you know, slavery is a sin. Slavery is essentially wrong and we should do everything in our power to end slavery and the slave trade. Mm, mm, mm. Take, I want to want to shift for a second again, listen, listening to Tom Ficklinso and Shasha Turner is with us, uh, associate professor at Quinnipiac. This weekend, Parkland, the, the, the marches, do you, what, 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 what goes through your mind, what has gone through your mind in terms of those these uh, you know, young people kind of thinking that there is a morality about human life. Um, so um, the marches have been very inspiring. It's always great to see young people um, at the forefront of these movements. And they're also tapping into a long history. We talked about this um, when I was here in February, the role of young people um, in these movements and how they've been central in energizing and, you know, providing new directions for, you know, a lot of these movements. So it's it's really very um, encouraging to see the young people getting at the forefront of this this long debate that has been taking place in America. Um, but again, um, what we have to be clear on is that these young people, along with others who support them, they have a strong argument. They have a strong conviction about the Mm. need for greater reform, for greater um, policies that control those who can access gun Mm. um, and those who can access different kinds of ammunition. Um, But the other part of the debate, and we saw this in terms of how various political leaders have been responding to the young people, which is that there is quite a distinction um, between those people who are on the ground campaigning and those people who are tasked with making decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have to be very careful that we don't then, when we do, and I say when we do, because I think we will achieve um, more responsible gun ownership in the future, um, when we do sort of, you know, pass legislation and then create mechanisms of controlling gun ownership, when that does in fact happen, we cannot then, one, um, pat the shoulders of the politicians mm-hmm, as mm-hmm, being the mm-hmm, moral leaders mm-hmm. to the neglect mm. of the people who were on the ground campaigning. This was their conviction. At the same time, we have to look very closely very closely at why certain decisions were taken um, and the implications of those decisions. And let me give you an example Mm. by drawing a parallel to Mm -hmm. the abolitionist movement. Mm -hmm. And again, this is new research that I'm I'm going to be um, referencing here. What is being investigated now by a lot of historians, um, Nicholas Draper um, and and Chris um, 
Mandrapra is the ways in which individuals who were invested in trade and plantation development in the East Indies, East Indies had any kind of sway in the British Parliament in terms of making decisions about the ending of slavery. Hmm. So part of the new argument, and it's new but not so new, again, Eric Williams in 1944, Capitalism and Slavery, made this argument that part of why Britain ends a slave trade is not for moral reasons, but for its own economic interests. So new markets, the new markets, new in, markets in, in, in India. Right, new markets in India, one. Um, and so individuals in England, so if you trace the compensation money, the compensation money didn't go to the Caribbean, or at least it didn't stay in the Caribbean. Again, new research is actually showing that of the planters who gained compensation money, many of them were also members of parliament in England. So I'll hmm. say that again. Hmm. Slaveholders were also members of parliament in England. Members of parliament are tasked with the decision of um, ending, the slave, uh, ending slavery and how slavery will actually come to an end. What was agreed is that slave owners would get compensation hmm. money. This compensation money that was paid out to the slave owners was extracted from the Caribbean and reinvested in the trade and plantations that were developing in East India mm. at the time. Mm. Right. Mm. So this is the economics. Mm. So mm. The, 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 what's given the narrative mm -hmm. of abolition is that it's a moral abolition. And we sort of take that and pause that, yes, there are people on the ground who were campaigning, who were convinced that slavery was immoral. But those who were tasked with the decision making, I'm doubtful of their moral conviction. First of all, the, the economic incentive. There is mm -hmm. the economic incentive. So did it make greater sense at the time to end slavery in order to reinvest mm -hmm. that money. So you're liquidating what is now becoming dirty money, blood money. Mm -hmm. So if you think about slaves and the argument that was made by the abolitionists, this now slavery is becoming untenable because, um, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over England, ordinary people are saying this is wrong. Much like the throngs of people who were in D.C. over the weekend mm -hmm, mm -hmm. have flocked to the streets to say, this is wrong. We absolutely need to abolish it. So slavery here in the 1820s is becoming unstable. Right. And so those who are tasked with the decision um, perhaps are making a calculated decision mm -hmm. to say it's unlikely that slavery will last mm. another five yes. decades. How do we extract that money, all that money that we've invested in That's buying true. slaves, yes, 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 yes. in investing in the plantations in the Caribbean, how do we recover that money to ensure that when slavery does in fact go up in flames, we don't also lose our capital mm -hmm. investment? Mm -hmm. And so the compensation money that was being paid out, remember again that there were slave owners who were members of the British Parliament who would have been part of those discussions. And you can refer, I'm referencing here Chris Mandrapo's work, um, which, you know, sort of follows that money trail and follows that decision-making process. Um, they were able to extract that wealth from the West Indies and then reinvest it 
in the new trade that was developing in places like Inda, India, um, Ceylon, um, mm -hmm. you know, a variety of trades and plantations were developing here mm -hmm. in the East Indies. So to go back to your question, Tom, about what we're seeing now in terms of contemporary um, campaigns against gun or for gun reform, on the one hand, there are ordinary Americans who are campaigning. But on the other hand, there are politicians who are tasked with the decisions mm -hmm. Politicians who have all sorts of entanglements. Yeah, um, we NRA saw, money, et cetera. That's mm -hmm. right. They, they, you know, they have these these entanglements with the business interests, and so now it's becoming almost untenable to continue to turn a blind eye um, to to gun control. And so their decision making will be well. What is the best way to protect the financial interest? So this is why I'm saying when gun reform does in fact happen let's not stop there use the lesson from abolitionists um and use the lesson that historians are now putting together to say wait a minute let's make a clear distinction between the moral mm. conviction mm. Mm. of individuals who say slavery is wrong um or today we need gun control and the politicians who are bedfellows with the business <laughs> interests who will then mm -hmm. make a decision that fits the economic interests um, of the NRA and of all of these um, different corporations, just as it was with abolitionists who were then, I'm sorry, with the reformers mm -hmm. in the 1820s and the investors who were able to extract capital from the West Indies where, you know, slave ownership is now becoming untenable yes. and then reinvest that capital in the East Indies. Right. You're listening to the Tom Ficklin show and Sasha, as we kind of wind down, Sasha Turner, associate professor at Quinnipiac University. Uh, we're celebrating the International Day of, again, remembrance of the, the, the victims of slavery of the trans and the transatlantic slave trade. Um, Sasha, let's jump as we your book. I, you, you've referenced your book before, and I'm not your book agent, nor am I uh, being paid for these 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 commercials. But the the title and what your what the book says and does and and feels and I say, how can a book feel? Well, if you pick up this book, you will feel it. It will feel you. You will feel it. Uh, you'll feel sad. You'll feel happy. You'll be sobered. So, but share a little bit about the contested bodies. Um. So my book. The full title, Contested Bodies, um, Pregnancy, Child Rearing, and Slavery in Jamaica. Um, it fits squarely into this discussion that we're having this morning about the complicated process of abolition. One of the arguments that I make in the book that has implications for this debate um, or this discussion, along with what we're seeing unfolding in terms of the campaign for gun reform, is the proposal that abolitionists make to shift away from the transatlantic slave trade toward biological reproduction of slaves in the Caribbean. These are abolitionists. Um, abolitionists. So, so to grow, grow more homegrown crops. Homegrown, right. And I have a piece that I wrote for the Journal of Women's History called Homegrown oh, Slaves. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's called Homegrown Slaves. Um, and what I argue in that article and develop more fully in the book is that abolitionists were against slavery and the slave trade, but they were not necessarily against the British Empire. <laughs> so this is why Sun I, never I keep saying, Sun right? Never sense, yes, <laughs> yes. It's, that's why I keep saying we have to be 
very clear um, about what they were opposed to and mm-hmm. what they supported. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these abolitionists, um, and I talk about William Wilberforce and James Ramsey, for example, in the book, they created these very elaborate plans on how to encourage enslaved women to reproduce, to bear more children mm. in mm. the Caribbean as a way of ending the dependence on the transatlantic mm. slave trade. Mm. And part of the argument that they make is that enslaved Africans who were purchased as adults were um, rebellious. It was far more difficult to get them to become docile, obedient slaves, one. Um, and two, the slave trade was particularly horrific. And here mm-hmm. we have these moral arguments against slave trade, the slave trade. And all it does is to create brute laborers. Mm, what we actually want are individuals who are capable of performing in a variety of roles within the empire. And so these abolitionists, um, specific groups of abolitionists, made the argument that if we shift away from the slave trade towards locally reproducing these slaves, then it works out better, not just for the planters Mm. who can then Mm. train these children Mm -hmm. into the laborers that Mm -hmm. they want them to become. But by deploying missionaries, for example, to the Caribbean, you can then train individuals to become the kind of subject citizens of empire Mm. that you desire, Mm. right? So Mm. it's a win-win for both the planters and the British public who've raised this moral Mm -hmm. concern about slavery. So the shift then is towards biological reproduction. And this gets to the point that I've been making, which is that, yes, there is a moral argument. In in, in closing. Right. (laughs) There is the moral argument um, against slavery and the slave trade. But behind the scenes, you have policymakers who are making and debating these very complicated policies about securing the capital interests of British investors, but also how to best secure the interests more generally of the British Empire. And so that's part of the argument that I make here in Contested Bodies. Boy, we're going to wind, wind up and gonna, you're, you're going to come back, you promised. <laughs> you, you know, contingent on if I've, I'll have your people call my people. We're celebrating remembrance of today is what? The International Day of Remembrance of the Victims of the Transatlantic Slave Trade and Slavery. And you want people to take away what when we say those that, those phrases? Um, to remember the individuals. So this year's theme is emphasizing the stories of individuals who were victims of both the sla- of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. But beyond um, though the sort of the story of victim. Um, to think through the fact that the legacy yes, of slavery yes. and the slave trade continues um, today. So, you know, yes, um, slavery sort of in its strictest sense, because we have slavery sort of metastasized into different forms today. Yes, that form of slavery ended in the case of the Caribbean um, in the 1830s and the United States in the 1860s. Um, but the legacy continues today. And so what we are required to do is to be vigilant about mm, the mm, different ways mm, in which the legacies mm, of slavery mm. and the slave trade are continuing today. And in that vigilance, to take it another step further, um, which is to then campaign, to embark mm, on you know mm, secondary campaign mm, to ensure that we eradicate uh, racism and racial discrimination. We want true, true abolition, true freedom. Yes. Sasha, thank you so much for being here. Thank Harry, you. thank you so much. Uh, WNHH, thank you so much. Paul Bass, thank you. Let's thank the world. Let's thank ourselves and, and let's be grateful, but also active. 
It's the Tom Ficklin Show. We'll talk to you soon. Gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up